You are listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Well, as most of you know, as is mentioned already in our service, our church is preparing for an imminent migration to the Bradford area where it seems that God has graciously supplied us with our own building. The process right now is in the hands of the lawyers. Uh, They're just making sure that all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted before before the building is transferred to us. And once that happens, we are going to say goodbye to our friends here at King Bible Church, at least temporarily until we uh, see them. Uh, for whatever occasions we have in this lifetime or at the very least in the new heavens and the new earth and we'll say goodbye to this wonderful building which has been our church home for the last nine years. As a result of being in the middle of this process we find ourselves in a sort of limbo as we wait for this process to come to a successful completion as, and as you may imagine that makes sermon planning a little difficult My intention once we move to Bradford is to start a brand new series that will serve as an introduction to the values and the practices of our church. And to be honest with you, uh, even if we were not making this migration, uh, the leadership team, the elders of our church deemed it about the right time to do something like this again anyways. Uh, Our church is very different. It looks a lot different than what it looked like five years ago. Uh, lots of new people, and uh, we just want to reinforce the foundations that we have. So we're going to be talking about uh, the values that we have, what it means to be a gospel-centered church, why we have the commitment to prayer and to biblical fellowship and how we put that into practice in our church. We'll talk about pursuing and practicing the spiritual gifts, and we'll talk about how we use them in the corporate gatherings. We'll talk about uh, the family and our commitment to family-integrated Worship. So in other words, we'll be addressing the foundations that make up our church. We're not going to be laying a new foundation. Uh, instead, we'll be uncovering the foundation that we already have. And my, by doing so, my hope is that we will both um, reinforce and reveal those foundations. We want to re- reinforce those foundations as we get used to a new context as we integrate new people into our church, we want to reinforce who we are and understand biblically why we do what we do. But we also want to reveal those foundations so that the people who will be attending our services and hopefully joining our church uh, will have a better sense of who we are and why we do what we do. And so rather than resuming our series on gospel culture from uh, the letter uh, of, of 1 Timothy, and then stopping it again in a few weeks. We're just going to put the gospel culture series on hold. My intention is to finish it one day. I'm not sure when that will be, but we're going to put that on hold, and uh, we're going to do something else for now. And what I've decided to do is to do a brief series. Uh, between now and our migration, we're just going to be spending some time in Psalm 119 called Growing in God's Word. Growing in God's Word. This is going to follow up on Timmons' very helpful sermon from last Sunday when he reminded us of the importance of daily Bible reading. Timmons gave us a number of really helpful practical tools in that sermon uh, that I cannot improve upon. But what I can do is to help you see how God's word itself speaks to us about getting more of it into our lives. 
Uh, many of you may have likely heard of the 17th century Puritan writer, John Bunyan. He's most famous for writing uh, what some people say is the first novel written in the English language, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory about a, uh, a man named Christian who's on this journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And it's an allegory because it shows you about the perils and the in- in- encouragement that we need to persevere from the moment that we put our trust in Christ to the moment that we arrive in the city of God, which is, uh, which is heaven, the dwelling place of God. Uh, but not as many people know that Bunyan also wrote a number of other books, including a spiritual autobiography, an account of his conversion and of his personal spiritual life as he uh, figured out how to walk by faith in God through Christ. That autobiography is called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, uh, based off of 1 Timothy chapter 1, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in that book, what's interesting about it, I've been spending some time reading it, if, I, I kind of put a pause on it recently, but as I was reading it last year, what's interesting is that uh, he doesn't just write about his conversion, but he writes about the struggles with doubt and with temptation that he experienced after his conversion. On one occasion, after he had already become a Christian, he remembers lying on his bed, being fiercely assaulted with the temptation to sell and part with Christ. All through the morning, the words repeated in his mind, sell him, sell him, sell him, sell him. And ran through his mind again and again and again. And he, he, by sheer willpower, would reply, no, 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 not for thousands, not for thousands, not for thousands. And he, he writes very specifically that at times he would repeat that phrase 20 times at a time. But then he wrote this. But at last, after much striving, even until I was almost out of breath, I felt this thought pass through my heart. Let him go. And I felt my heart freely consent thereto. Bunyan seems to have abandoned Christ, at least in that moment. He seems to have given up Christ for the world. To, ex- to have exchanged the treasures that he had freely in heaven through Christ for the worldly treasures that are eaten up by moths and rust. But then as he went moping into the field, somewhat lamenting his decision, he remembered these verses from Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that no one is unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Bunyan was aware that what he had done is exchanged his birthright for a single meal. The glories of eternal life in Christ for the passing pleasures of the world. But the interesting thing about it is he did not repent and he did not turn to Christ. For two entire years from that moment when he lay on his bed being tempted to sell Christ, he lived as one who had abandoned Christ. But those verses from Hebrews chapter 12 stuck with him. He never forgot them. And to some extent, there was a fear of God left in his heart. Finally, after two years, he was on another walk and he recalled 1 John chapter 1 verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And he began to receive anew, afresh, 
peace in his soul. You might think that's the end of the story, but uh, you read the account and it turns out that that experience of peace only lasted two or three hours before he plunged back into despair and into questioning his faith and in wondering whether Christ was worth it. This cycle would repeat over and over and over again throughout his life. He was not one who experienced the peace of God, the assurance of his forgiveness, and the worth, the surpassing worth of Christ consistently and faithfully throughout his life. He went up and down from faith to doubt to faith and back again. But over and over again, what called him back to the Lord, what pricked his heart and convicted him that he could not live apart from Christ, but he needed Christ to be his savior, was again and again the word of God. Verses that he had memorized. Lessons that he had learned as a child. Words from the Bible that were written on his heart. It wasn't his words, it wasn't the world's words, it was God's word that brought him comfort. Now as I read that account... The question arose in my mind, do Christians today have the ability to be guided, comforted, convicted by God's word like that? And I fear that the answer is no. Because people don't know their Bibles the same way that Christians knew their Bibles back in the 17th century. People aren't reading our Bibles. And if if, if we are... uh, If we are reading our Bibles, we're not spending our time meditating on the word, applying the word to our hearts prayerfully, devotionally, in reliance on the Holy Spirit to the point where it's writing itself on our hearts. You know, we live in such a fast-paced, screen-saturated culture that reading and meditating on the Bible seems, at times, perhaps for some of you, seems all the time, like an archaic practice, like a relic of a bygone era. I remember, you know, I teach a high school theology class at a Christian school in Newmarket, and uh, we're talking about theology, and I'm encouraging the kids to uh, read up on this topic uh, that we had been having some pretty heavy debate on. And one of the students just said, oh, Mr. Tong, we don't need to do that. We have YouTube for all that now. Well, can you watch YouTube videos about the Bible? Yes, of course you can. But... We know what else comes up when we go on YouTube, right? A a score of different distractions that keep us from thinking, truly thinking and meditating upon the truths that we could find on those videos. There really is no replacement for putting your eyes on these pages without distraction, without the noise of our culture I'm emphasizing this so much because there is nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing that is more important than regular, even daily Bible reading in the Christian life. There are things that are equally important, like prayer, like fellowship, but if we do not have regular Bible reading, our prayers are going to be faithless. Our fellowship is going to be superficial. Bible reading animates every part of the Christian life, or as Timon so helpfully put it to us last week, it's the fuel that keeps the fires of Christian love burning in every sphere of our lives. Love for God, love for our own souls, love for our biological and spiritual families, and love for the lost. 
We need the word to feed the, the fires of Christian love so that if we have the word, our Christian love will burn hot and the other areas of our spiritual lives will flourish. But if we don't have the word, those practices will become empty shells of what they were meant to be. Now that leads us to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, this psalm is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us to help us grow in our desire to read his word. Many of you may know that Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible, but it's also the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses long. The psalm is broken up into 22 sections, each section with eight verses each. And uh, those eight verses, that block of eight verses, all starting with the same letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's really an amazing kind of poetically structured part of the Bible. 22 letters in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew alphabet and 22 sections in Psalm 119. Today, uh, even though every single one of these sections, these 22 sections could be treated as a distinct sermon, uh, we could start at the beginning, uh, but because I don't know how long we're going to have in Psalm 119, I decided to focus on the section that has spoken most deeply to my soul, convicted my heart, as I've sought to grow in Bible reading myself. It's verses 33 to 40. It's the fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the letter He, the letter He. So if you'd open your Bibles to Psalm 119, you can open it basically to the middle of your Bible and land in Psalm 119. We're going to be looking at verses 33 to 40 this afternoon. Let's read those verses together. This is the word of the Lord. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. The title of this sermon is Growing in God's Word, Part 1. Original, yes, I know. Growing in God's Word, Part 1. But uh, it saves me the work of coming up with unique sermon titles in this series. It's Part 1, Growing in God's Word. My aim today is to show you That faithful Bible reading begins with our hearts and our habits. Faithful Bible reading begins with our hearts and our habits. We're going to break up our text today into three areas of life that we need to address if we are to grow in becoming faithful readers of God's word. First, your prayers. Second, your affections. And third, your attention. First, your prayers. Second, your affections. And third, your attention. Let's begin with your prayers. Now, we don't know who wrote Psalm 119. Often at the beginning of the psalm, you'll see a song of David or a song of Asaph or you know, a song of the sons of Korah. But beginning of Psalm 119 in the uh, subscript, it doesn't tell us who wrote it. It just gets right into it. But we do know something about this man who wrote Psalm 119. 
we know that he was uh, experiencing some form of personal suffering. More specifically, we know that that personal suffering was the result of enemies who were lying to him, slandering him, and plotting against him. He hints at that in verse 39, when he prays, turn away the reproach that I dread. He's praying that God would take away the contempt and the disgrace that he would receive if his enemies succeeded against him. If their plots worked and they were able to tear him down and do what they wanted to do against him. He writes about this experience of having these enemies elsewhere in Psalm 119. Verse 51, the insolent utterly deride me. Verse 61, the cords of the wicked ensnare me. Verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies. Verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. This this man is being persecuted. People are hating upon him and he is suffering because of it. But in the midst of all this oppression and hatred, he doesn't just call upon the Lord to deliver him. Though he certainly does that. I mean, verse 39 is an example of that. Turn away the reproach that I dread. He, he calls for deliverance, but he also calls upon the Lord to give him more of his word. It's amazing. Indeed, there, there are times when he self-consciously asks for God to give him more of his word or expresses his desire for the word in the context of his suffering. None better than verse 23, where he says, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. That's amazing. Now, what would you do if you had princes, you know, powerful, rich rulers of nations and people plotting against you? You're in their crosshairs. They know your name. They got a file on you, and they want to tear you down. Well, perhaps you would plot in return to get some allies. You try to take them out before they can take you out. Perhaps you just run away and hide and hope that they lose interest in you. Uh, In the context of such danger and anxiety, I wonder who among us would sit down with our Bibles open and meditate on God's statutes. That's precisely what Psalm 119 urges us to do. This man is under attack. But rather than use all his energy and his attention to figuring out how to get out of that attack, he turns to the Lord by turning to his word. Because he knows that this is the one thing that's going to sustain him, the one thing that's going to preserve his soul and give him peace in the midst of these attacks. So what what is it that's afflicting you today? What's causing you anxiety and fear? What's making you feel like you need to put all your energy and your attention into getting rid of that before you can turn to God's word? Well, Psalm 119 tells us that that there's absolutely nothing. There's nothing that should stand between us and God's word. Not legal proceedings. Not unfair bosses. Not online slander. Not the busyness of raising young children. Not the uncertainties about the future. Not the pain of betrayal. Even if princes sat plotting against you, we are to meditate on God's word. And that's not easy. In fact, you could say that it is impossible apart from supernatural help. And that is why Psalm 119 is written as a prayer. It's written as a prayer. Lord, Lord, help me 
to see your word, to love your word, to meditate on your word. Help me to, to not focus just on these enemies who plot against me, but to focus on the truths of your word. This isn't just self-reflection. This is supplication. It's a cry to God for divine help to turn from, from trusting in man-made solutions to trusting in God-given deliverance. That's immediately clear in our text. Every single verse has a request in it. From verse 33 to verse 40, he's asking, teach me, give me, lead me, incline me, turn my eyes, confirm to your, to your servant, turn away their approach, give me life. Every single verse, a request. But what, what is he asking for? What is the essence of his request? Well, he says in verse 33, teach me the way of your statutes. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments. 36, incline my heart to your testimonies. These are just different ways of saying the same thing over and over again. He's saying, give me more of your word. I want more of your holy word. I need more of the scriptures. Now, it's helpful to to understand that Psalm 119 actually uses eight different words for the scriptures. And four of them are in verses 33 to 36. Statutes, law, commandments, and testimonies. Each word has a slightly nuanced meaning, but all of them refer to the same thing. They all refer to God's word, to the holy scriptures. Commandment nuances a little bit by emphasizing God's sovereign authority to tell us what to do. He issues commands to us as our sovereign king. Law emphasizes the Torah, the law of Moses given to Israel at Mount Sinai, the the moral laws of God's people. Testimonies emphasizes the fact that this this is what God has said to be true, that God has testified that this is so and therefore it is reliable and unchanging. Little nuances, but in the end, they're all saying the same thing. Teach me your word. Give me understanding in your word. Help me to love your word. Help me to obey your word. Now, this is, this is God himself giving us these words. There's a, there's a human author, the psalmist, but behind him is the divine author. God himself is giving us these prayers. And he wouldn't give us these prayers if he didn't intend to answer these prayers. He, he says, you can pray these things with confidence, knowing that I will answer them because I have told you to pray and ask for these things. And so God himself stands ready to teach us through his spirit. Think about what a privilege it would be for you to be personally mentored by the person who is at the height of your profession. You're an engineer, You get to talk to the the leading engineer in the world, in your field, and he gets to teach you about his methodology and his scientific process, whatever engineers talk about. Or if you're an accountant or a pastor or a professor or a philosopher, you could be mentored by the person at the height of your profession. How much more a privilege, how much more a great, indescribable privilege to be mentored by the God of the universe And that is what God has offered to do, to teach us himself. Now, most of us know that in our personal devotions, we need to engage in two things, in praying and in reading God's word. But these verses remind us that we are also to pray about our reading of God's word, to pray about our reading 
How many of us think about doing that? That's what these verses model for us. They model prayers about our reading, to pray about our reading, as the psalmist recognizes that he cannot teach himself. He needs God to teach him through his spirit. Now, this ought to be one of the regular daily things that we pray about. Because if if God doesn't teach us, it doesn't matter how often we read, how much we read. The Pharisees read a lot, but they never got it. They didn't understand the scriptures, nor did they understand the power of God. We need God to teach us through his spirit. This isn't an intellectual exercise. It is a spiritual exercise, the reading of God's word, and therefore it requires prayer. That's what verse 33 is about. It says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and then see what the second half of it says. And I will keep it to the end. I will keep it to the end if you teach me. If you teach me, if you mentor me, if you train me, I I will not give up. I will persevere. Now, for those who are in our church, you'll know that 2019 was hard for us. As we saw a dear friend of ours walk away from the faith, and we're reminded of how, how hard it is to persevere in faith. It's hard for us to persevere in our marriages. It's hard to persevere in our jobs. All of us know people who have given up. Or in the imagery that Jesus himself gives us, they've left half-built towers and abandoned them. They did not count the cost or the world choked out the seeds that were sown. It is hard to persevere. Verse 33 teaches us that perseverance comes from praying that God would teach you through his word. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will, I will, not I may, I will keep it to the end. Verse 34 asks the same thing, but from a different angle. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. This psalmist is praying that the Lord would give him persevering obedience. If we want to be a people who don't give up our faith at the first sign of trouble or persecution or temptation, but instead persevere in faithful obedience, we need to pray that the Lord himself will teach us. We don't just need Bible teachers and pastors, though we're thankful for them. I have a role to serve because God has ordained it to be so, but what do I do? I sow. God is the one who gives the growth. We need God himself to teach us so that we will keep his word to the end. So as we read the word, we are to pray for understanding of the word, but we are also to pray for something else, and that leads to our second point, your affections, your affections. Verse 36, it says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. This is one of my, the favorite, one of the, my favorite verses to pray as I open up the Bible. For those who are familiar with John Piper, he has uh, an acrostic that helps him prepare his heart. It goes I-O-U-S, I-O-U-S. This is the I. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Um, Dr. Piper is regularly praying this verse for his own soul. 
And I love to pray it as well because it reminds me that reading is not just a matter of the mind. It is a matter of the heart. It's not just about what you know. It's about what you love. Now, the psalmist already knows this, and to some extent, he already experiences it. In verse 35, he says that he, he delights in God's commandments. And in verse 40, he says he longs for God's precepts. His affections are active already, and he's already responding to the word of God with love. But in verse 36, what he's doing is he's going a step deeper. He doesn't just pray that his delight would be in God's word. He prays that his, his heart would be inclined to God's word, which is a very different thing. He doesn't just want his delight in God's word to be a one-off experience. He wants it to become a habit that becomes a regular part of his experience with and in God's word. And in order for that to happen, he needs the Lord to incline his heart to his word. Now, what's, what's at stake here is a key insight into human nature. Okay, you think about how secular culture perceives of human nature. The philosophical word for it is secular humanism. Secular humanism teaches that human beings are primarily rational creatures. We're primarily moved by what we, we think. The arguments that persuade us to believe something or do something. It's summed up best by that famous saying by Descartes, I think, therefore I am. It's not, I feel, therefore I am. It's not, I love, therefore I am. It's not, I read in God's word that he created me and therefore I am. No, I think. It's in our secular humanist culture and thinking, the basis of human nature is grounded in the mind, in rationality. That is the essence of human nature based on the culture that we live in. The Bible presents a very different view of human nature. It teaches that human beings are primarily moved not by what we feel, not by what we think, but by what we love. By what we love. Secular humanism says that what we find rational, what persuades us in our minds, determines what we love. But the Bible teaches that what we love determines what we find rational. It's the other way around. And that's why if you're speaking with a committed atheist who isn't in some kind of crisis, isn't kind of questioning the legitimacy of their beliefs because it's not working. It doesn't matter how logical and persuasive your arguments are. You're not going to persuade that person to become a Christian because that person loves living apart from God. That person loves their personal autonomy and no rational argument is going to persuade them to give it up. The only way to reach people who don't yet know Christ is to address what they love. That's what verse 36 is getting at. It's showing us that our hearts are inclined in a particular direction. And where it is inclined determines what we believe and how we live. And no one understood this better than the fourth century divine, Saint Augustine. You know, 1,600, 1,700 years ago, he wrote these profound words in his spiritual autobiography, The Confessions. He said, my weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. Now, what does that mean? Well, Reformed, James, uh, Reformed scholar James Smith tries to explain as follows. He says this, our orienting loves are like a kind of gravity, carrying us in the direction to which they are weighted. If our loves are absorbed with material things, then our love is a weight that drags us downward to inferior things. 
But when our loves are animated by the renewing fire of the spirit, then our weight tends upward. And so the question for us today is, where, where, do, we, where do you find yourself being carried? If you answer that question, then you'll answer the deeper question of what you love. Because your love is carrying you. Wherever I am carried, Augustine said, my love is carrying me. So what do you think about in your spare time? Where do your thoughts carry you? Is it how to make more money? Is it how to get more people to like you and admire you? Is it how to control your environment to maximize your comfort and security? When you get home from work, and if you have young kids, you put them to, to bed, where, where, where do you tend to be carried? Is it to your screens, to your televisions, to your laptops, to your phones? Is it to an impulse to go work out and make yourself more attractive? Where are you being carried? Where you are being carried reveals what you love. Now, if we're honest, none of us would say that we are carried to the things of God, at least not all the time. Our loves are mixed up, confused, and disordered so that we love lesser things more than the greater things of God. Verse 36 sums it up nicely. It says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. That's what we're inclined to. We're inclined to what serves the self, not what serves God. We're inclined to love what gives us more control over our lives, what makes us feel better about ourselves. We love what furthers our kingdoms, what furthers our agendas, our plans. It really is no surprise when we think about what we love that we don't spend more time reading God's word. We're not being carried to the things of God because we're too busy being carried to the things of self. And this is just another way of, of describing, explaining, and understanding the essence of sin. Sin has so corrupted our hearts. It's not just an action, it's an inclination. Sin has given us an inclination inwards rather than upwards. Our inclination is not to serve God, but to serve self. And this is true of every single one of us. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have hearts that are inclined to self rather than to God. And therefore, all of us need a radical change in our hearts if we are to grow in God's word. The wonderful thing about the gospel is that this is what Jesus died on the cross to give us. He died us to free us from the penalty of sin but he also died to free us from the power of sin. He died to remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh that throb with desire and love for God. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're like, what is this guy talking about? This is all new to me. This is, it sounds foreign. It's so outside of my experience, but there's something about this that I want because the world has not satisfied me. My heart is inclined to the world again and again, but it's like playing in mud when I could be you know, in a, on a beautiful vacation you know, with people that I love. That's the analogy that C.S. Lewis uses. We, we choose mud, not because it's better, but because we're sinful. And we'd rather have the mud than God. 
Well, this new heart that the scriptures teach us about, this inclination upwards rather than inwards, is available as a free gift. Christ offers it to you to not only do heart surgery, but to give you a heart transplant, a new inclination to him and away from yourself, if you would but look to him, trusting in his forgiveness. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to remember that you already have this heart. It may not feel that way sometimes because we still experience the presence of indwelling sin, but you have a new heart as a free gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't have to put it in yourself. God, through his spirit, put it in you. So you can pray this prayer. Incline my heart to your testimonies with confidence that God will help you to do that, to love him, to love the things of God, to love his word more than the world. We're to grow in God's word through our prayers. We're to grow in God's word through our affections. And lastly, we grow in God's word through our attention. And those who know me, who have been a part of our church for the last several months, you'll maybe recall a testimony that I shared in front of our church back in August. I was recently freed from addiction to mobile games. Now that may sound somewhat flippant or sound like, oh, that's what the pastor struggles with? You know, it's not pornography, it's mobile games. How serious can, they, can that be? But it was an addiction. It had a, what seemed like an immovable hold on my life. I was aware of this, and so I tried various things. Tried to leave my phone with my wife during work hours. I installed an app tracker that kept track of how long I was spending on this particular game. Um, my wife tried to get me on this game for less than an hour. The best I could do was two and a half. And on Saturdays, on my days off, it would be three and a half. It wasn't all in, uh, in one block. It was 20 minutes here, 15 minutes there. It was long bathroom breaks. It was extended bedtime routines as I play this game, as I interact with people from all over the world about how to strategize and excel in this game. Now, my wife likes to put Bible verses up on our wall, um, our different walls at our house. She writes them out on a little key, cue card. And uh, in, in our bathroom, there's this clipboard that hangs on the wall, and she will hang these verses on the clipboard. And one of these verses she put up was verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. And in the middle of all that addiction, you know, playing this game, I refused to look at that wall because I didn't want to be convicted. I knew in my heart of hearts that I was looking at worthless things, that I should have been spending more time looking at the worthy one, the the one who is worth all, Christ himself, but I was looking at worthless things and I didn't want to change. So how did I give it up? Well, it was through the simplest and most ordinary of means. It was through corporate worship. Through corporate worship. It was in the midst of singing praise to God through the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of the Spirit that my heart was inclined to God once more. He filled me with a sense of his love and with a deeper sense of my love for him. And it was in that moment that I realized I, I, could, I could give up this game. And that had seemed impossible to me the day before. 
But in that moment, in corporate worship, I realized that even though I still love this game, I love my teammates, I didn't want to let them down by quitting, I could give it up for God. And so when I quit, it felt less like giving something up and more like gaining something better. You know, my friends, there is a war going on around us. It's not a war for land or for titles or for political principles. It's a war for our attention. In the prosperous West, it's not princes who are plotting against us. It's tech giants. Whether you're talking about Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Snapchat, every single, single one of these companies has rooms full of people with almost limitless resources, thinking, planning, studying, strategizing about one thing, how to get your eyes on their apps. You know, the Microsoft CEO, Satya Nadella, said this, we were moving from a world where computing power was scarce to a place where it is now almost limitless and where the true scarce commodity is increasingly human attention. That is an amazing phenomenon. And it is one created by the advent and um, ubiquitousness of our smartphones. Smartphones have brought digital media into every part of our lives, from our, the moment that we wake up to the moment that we go to sleep. They are available to us. And billion-dollar companies are competing with one another for the market space of our minds. You know, last year I read this very helpful book. It's by Tony Renke. Some of you may know him as the host of Ask Pastor John. But he's also the, the former uh, personal assistant to C.J. Mahaney, um, the, the man whom God used to largely start our family of churches. He's written this very helpful, insightful book called Competing Spectacles. If you, if you are aware of oversaturation of screens in your life, and you want to be more aware of what it's doing to us and how that is coming about through uh, the work of these tech giants, I encourage you to read this book. It is so helpful. And in this book, he, he writes this. He says, we have limited amounts of time to focus in a given day. And now every second of our attention can be targeted and commoditized. Stark language for a dark reality, but it is the reality. So the question for us is, what are, what are we giving our attention to? Who are you allowing to purchase the truly scarce commodity of your attention? Is it the worthless things of the world? Or is it the eternal things of God? I truly believe that there are few prayers that are more relevant and more powerful for our day and age than verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways because life is not found in worthless things. It's found in Christ Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the one who promised life and life to the full. Jesus is the one who said, if you come to me, you will never hunger and thirst again, but you will find rest for your souls. Nothing is more worthy of our attention. We give Jesus our attention by paying attention to his word. You know, it is so easy for Christians to say, God, I give you my life. But how many of us are willing to say, God, I give you my time. I give you my attention. We need to realize that giving Jesus our lives begins with giving Jesus our time. 
And that means, at the very least, turning our eyes from worthless things and turning them to him instead. So in conclusion, where where do we start? What, What are some practical tools to begin? Well, it starts with an awareness of your habits. It starts with an awareness of your habits. What does your day look like? What do you tend to do? Where, where does your life, where do your thoughts tend to carry you? Because that's going to reveal your loves. And until you reveal what you love instead of God, you're fighting a losing war. You need to know your enemy if you're going to defeat it. Well, it requires conscious reflection, perhaps with the help of someone else, but where you tend to be carried. What kind of selfish gains characterize our lives? Is it the comfort of screens? Is it the ambition of career success? Is it the admiration of physical beauty? We need to be aware of where our hearts are inclined so that we can start addressing those broken false loves with the gospel. And it's not rocket science. We do that through the regular means of grace. We, we pray about it. We confess it, we seek correction from fellow believers about it, we study what the Bible says about it, and we, we, we do those things on repeat. That's what waging war against sin looks like. And we need to wage war against sin because, as John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You identify your habits to reveal your loves, and then you need to take action. You need to take action. You need to start changing your habits. I mean, our loves dictate our habits, but to some extent, our habits can also dictate our loves. What we do determines what we think about, what we pay attention to. So if you're addicted to your phone, I think a lot about the area of phones because that's an area of struggle for me, and I know it's an area of struggle for people in my generation. So if you're addicted to your phone, we need to change how we use it. The other day, I arrived at my kid's school. uh, When I was about to pick them up, I arrived 10 minutes early. And what I usually do is I whip up my phone and I read the news or I read about sports or I just do something to, to, to kill the time. But as I was studying this passage and meditating on these verses, I thought to myself, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. Uh, maybe I can pray. Maybe I can meditate on God's word. Maybe I can try to work through what this sermon is going to look like. You know, the, the funny thing is, maybe it's not so funny, I still found myself pulling out my phone, <laughs> even though I was self-consciously aware that I didn't want to do that. You know, how addicted are we when we do what we don't want to do? And after browsing CBC News for a little while and realizing that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are going to divide their time between the UK and North America, I was just like, what? Okay, I'm putting this away. I'm going to meditate on God. I'm going to pray and how sweet it was. 10 minutes of prayer makes a huge difference. God is available to us at every, every moment of every day through Christ. Why, why would we learn about you know, the, the person who is fifth in succession to the British throne? Choose him rather than the God, the King of kings, the God of the universe, the creator of our souls, the lover of our souls. We must change our habits. So I encourage you to think about that. What do you tend to do? And how can you begin to change that? 
Now, Tony Renke, he, he writes this, uh, again, helpful thing. He, we think about that commandment in 1 Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. You know, Spurgeon wrote about how between every one of his tasks, he likes to spend a little bit of time praying. Then Renke writes this in reflection on that. <clears throat> praying without ceasing claims the momentary transitions in our day, or at least should. They should. The rare empty moments of silence and turns our attention on God himself. Moments now plundered and carried off by digital media. I, I need stark imagery like that to remind myself of what's being done to my mind, that my attention is being commoditized. I, I, I need to reclaim my attention and in some ways relearn how to live without a phone, to get used to being bored so that in those bored moments I can turn to God instead of instant gratification on my phone. Now, that's not to say that our phones are bad. Our phones, like any piece of technology, are morally neutral. They can be used for good, or they can be used for harm. And maybe you're thinking about your phone use, and you'll be like, well, you know, I'm not doing anything that's harmful, and so I don't really need to change my habits. I think we need to ask ourselves this. Is our phone use the best way that can be, we can be using our time? Is it the best way for us to, to, to spend the this, this scarce commodity of our attention? You know, in the end, it's not about whether we should use our phones or not, whether we should watch shows or not, whether we should follow sports or not. I can guarantee you that I've read every single article on sportsnet.ca about the Toronto Maple Leafs. I'm still reading things that aren't making me think about God, and uh, perhaps I'm engaged too much in that. But th- that's not the question. The question is, are the best things in life getting the most of our attention? Are the best things in life getting the most of our attention? Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. I think this is so helpful. Of course, there are common grace gifts to enjoy in the latest viral videos, memes, and GIFs, or GIFs. I don't know, I don't know what that is. And yet, there are more gifts of common grace and special grace to be enjoyed in an excellent book, a thoughtful conversation, a long walk, time in silence, time in prayer, time in the word. If I'm going to suffer from FOMO, which I just learned what that meant recently, fear of missing out, it's a thing. It's a phenomenon in our day and age. FOMO, fear of missing out. That's why people are addicted to their phones, to their social media. They don't want to miss out on the latest viral video. They don't want to be in a circumstance where their friends are talking about something viral and they're like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. It's FOMO. If I am going to suffer from FOMO, I want it to be the fear of missing out on all the things I could be learning, all the ways I could be growing, or all the ways I could be a bigger blessing to my family, my church, and my friends. That is a good word. That is a word that we need. May the Lord help each one of us to be a greater blessing to our family, to our church, to our friends, to the lost, as he inclines our hearts to his testimonies and not to selfish gain. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to treat it like a gift, a gift of everlasting value, rather than the kinds of gifts that we receive at Christmas that we enjoy for a while and then discard and move on to the next thing. May we see the Holy Scriptures as the greatest gift of all, that we would give it its due attention, that we might seek you and grow in the things of God for the glory of your name. 
Amen.